Well, over the past uh, several months, we have been making our way through the story of the Bible, and we have uh, talked to you again and again about there being an upper story and a lower story. <clears throat> the lower story is where you and I are living uh, today, and uh, we're dealing with things like uh, paying the bills. Anybody have to pay a bill uh, this week? We're dealing with conflict in relationships. We're uh, parenting kids. We're going to school or getting kids off to school. We're getting over a sickness or uh, maybe feeling like we might be sick. We're finding a job. We're buying a house. We're selling a house. We're uh, stubbing our toe and dealing with what we say when we do that. And we're doing all kinds of things like that. We're living life. That is the lower story, our story, that's constantly happening. And then there's the upper story, and that's where we discover uh, what God is up to and what the grand narrative is in Scripture. And that grand narrative is what we're all about here at Northwest, and that is uh, the gospel. And, and if there's one book in the Bible that I think demonstrates really well this lower story of what's going on and then this upper story that's happening that we don't see but we know that something is going on that's bigger than us. It is the Old Testament book of Esther. Uh, if you have your Bibles or your uh, phone or your iPad or whatever you might have today, I want you to take a, and open your Bible up to uh, Esther uh, chapter 1. This is a short book of the Bible. <clears throat> it's 10 chapters. We did this in a series uh, several uh, years ago. And uh, I figured out yesterday that it was about five hours of teaching. And um, so we're going to be here for a while, in other words. Uh, actually, we're not going to do that. Um, but it is a thrilling story in 10 chapters. It's an incredible cast of bigger-than-life uh, people. You have a, uh, uh, a narcissistic king who's uh, married to a queen who obviously is just kind of sick and tired of being married to this king. You have a group of yes-men that are surrounding uh, that king who really don't care so much about him as they do their own agendas and what's best for them. You have a man that's living a, a very hard life just trying to get by and to survive in a pagan culture. And as a result of some unfortunate circumstances, he finds himself as a relatively young man forced to uh, take care of and adopt his young cousin because both of her parents have died. Uh, really, the book of Esther would be ten great episodes on Netflix, Right? I don't know how many of you are, are like that. I've kind of gotten into the habit on Netflix. If you like a particular series and they come out with a new series and you watch all of them at once, anybody else do that? Like, you know, you're supposed to space them out back in the old days when we were kids, some of us. Some of you still are kids. But, um, you know, we had to wait for the next week. Well, now we can just kind of watch it all in 10 hours. It's all, it's all over with. We got the whole, we got the whole thing. Well, this, this would be one of those things that would make a great miniseries. Christians, in fact, over the centuries have not known exactly what to do with the book of Esther. Uh, in fact, for the first seven centuries of church history, there wasn't a commentary that was written on the book of Esther. It's never mentioned in any other book in the Bible. 
And in fact, Bible uh, teachers and scholars um, always are debating back and forth whether or not uh, the main characters are good people that have gone bad or they're good people that are just unfortunately stuck in difficult circumstances. And here's the most interesting fact, that in 167 verses, God's name is never mentioned. Now, the reason I say this is the best example of this upper story and this lower story is that there are so many times in our lives where we feel like God is not present. Like God obviously doesn't care about what's going on. Here's why I believe that God included this book in the Bible and why it's incredibly relevant for us today. Consider this statement. God's presence is not nearly as intriguing as his apparent absence. God's presence, no doubt, is intriguing, but it's not nearly as intriguing as it is when he is working, yet apparently it seems as if he's absent. All of us at times in our life have felt like that, I guarantee you. Either you felt like that, you're feeling like that right now, or you will be feeling like it in the days to come where you've experienced loss or disappointment. That's where some of you are right here today. And you're asking yourself the question on a regular basis, God, where are you? Do you care? Do you know what's going on in my life? I believe by faith that you are powerful and that you can do something in these circumstances, but I don't see you at work at all. I bet if we were to stop right now and we were just to be able to get really vulnerable with one another, we could go down the rows. And some of you, if you were honest, in this community of believers, you would say, that's how I feel today. God, are you really present? And that's because of this upper story and this lower story, where we're living right here, and yet what God's plan is up here and what he is doing. If you've ever wondered if God is absent and if God really cares and is God really working and does he really have a plan, if you've ever wondered that, if those questions have ever been there, then the book of Esther is a really great book for you to study. In the first hour, I gave a little bit of history, and I'm going to condense that uh, just a little bit for uh, the sake of time. But I know some of you here this morning, you're fairly uh, new in your faith. Maybe some of you at this point, you're just exploring who Jesus is. And uh, you haven't studied a lot in the Bible, and so we jump into a book like Esther, and I want to make sure that you at least have some context of what's going on here. Uh, for many years, uh, there has uh, been a divided kingdom that was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Both kingdoms were eventually conquered. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and evade, invades uh, Judah, and he takes most of the people over the next several years, he takes most of them as prisoners and, to, and as captives, and he takes them to Babylon. Jerry talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago in the book of Daniel. In 559 B.C., Babylon itself is conquered by the Persian uh, emperor uh, Cyrus. He's regarded possibly as the greatest emperor in the Persian Empire. And he establishes this huge kingdom that literally in today's geography would go from northern Africa all the way to modern-day Turkey. It's a huge, huge area of land. And he goes in and he conquers uh, Babylon. The people of Babylon actually are, are glad that he's come in and that he's conquered them. And as a result, Cyrus makes the decree that all the Jews can go back. 
They can go back to Jerusalem. They can rebuild their city. He, even, he makes it possible for them to do that, not because he's such a great guy, but most scholars believe because he wanted to increase his tax base. It wasn't an easy task to go back and rebuild that city. And so not a lot of people went. Actually, there were a lot of Jews that decided that they would stay right there in Persia. And as a result of staying there in Persia, you can imagine that um, it's a difficult place for these people uh, to live. There is no temple. Their God is not worshipped. It's interesting that many people stayed rather than going back and, and facing the difficult task of rebuilding. It reminds me of what's going on here and these people staying and conforming to their culture. It reminds me of the contrast that Jerry talked about a couple of weeks ago to Daniel and his friends. You remember Daniel and his friends, when, when they came into Babylon, they didn't conform to the culture around them. But Daniel chapter 1, verse 8 says that Daniel purposed in his heart. He made up his mind that he wasn't going to defile himself, and they stayed true to their convictions. Standing for what is right is uh, rarely something that is rewarded instantly. Have you found that to be true in your life? And in a culture that we're living in, and as I look at you middle school and high school students, a culture that you're living in and the kind of schools that you're going to, it's rarely going to be easy for you to stand up what it, for, what is, for what is right and for what is just. But in the long term, we say this often at Northwest, we believe that obedience does what? Obedience brings blessing. Obedience rarely brings blessing immediately. If it did, we'd all be obedient, right? Because we'd have immediate satisfaction. Obedience rarely brings blessing immediately, but it always does bring blessing. And Daniel's life demonstrated that. So the book of Esther is actually a tiny snapshot of the Jews that are choosing to live in exile in Persia rather than going back to Jerusalem. And the whole story serves the purpose of a reminder to us that God doesn't forget us even though circumstances may seem dire, even though we don't necessarily see his hand at work, that God is working in that upper story. And so if you have your Bibles open in uh, Esther chapter 1, and I'm going to go through really quickly. We're not going to read a lot of verses. I'm going to summarize for you. But in chapter 1, we read that there is a king and your text probably says that his name is Ahasuerus. That was more of a title than it was a specific name. Most historians would refer to this king, and in fact, in historical records, he's referred to as King Xerxes. He's a spoiled, narcissistic, rich kid who grows up in a palace. He's never worked a full day in his life. He simply lives a lavish lifestyle because his father, Darius, has been a, a great conqueror. His, his grandfather, Cyrus... They've put together this incredible kingdom, and it's as if he wakes up one day and he finds out that uh, he is uh, responsible uh, for three million square miles of real estate, roughly the size of the USA. How ironic. In fact, the Jewish historians, there are several that tell us that when he becomes the uh, king of Persia, he is about 32 years old, and he's tall and handsome. I think that's interesting. It's interesting also to note that um, uh, most historians were on the payrolls of the king, right? So he very well could have been a short, stubby, little fat guy, right? 
not necessarily tall and handsome, but that's the way that history records him. He's 32 years old when he becomes king, and he's got literally the world at his feet. He's got plenty of money, he's got women, he's got everything. And so he calls a 180-day summit where he brings all the influential people together of the provinces. He uses an opportunity to show off what he has, but also uh, to plan his next great military conquest, which is going to be to take over the Greeks. If you know your history, you know that his uh, father, Darius, had tried to do that, and Darius had failed miserably in his attempt to conquer the Greeks. And so Xerxes wanted to kind of make that up for his dad. And after 180 days of them being on this retreat, he decides he's now going to cap it all off with a seven-day party for everyone. And if you look in verse 8, we see this is the first open bar in Scripture. He opens up the bar. In fact, he makes it very, very clear to his, um, to his servants. He says, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. Meaning, drink as much as you want. There is no cost. No money needed. Just drink till your heart is content. They're doing this for not seven hours. They're doing this for seven days. Uh, that's a, uh, a sign that bad stuff is just about ready uh, to happen, and indeed it does. If you were to read on, you would see that the king, uh, as he is merry with wine, <laughs> that doesn't mean he's just happy because he chose the great bottle of wine that just kind of really uh, did well on his palate. He's, he's drunk, and as a result of his drinking, as a result of his drunkenness, he orders his servant to bring the queen, Queen Vashti, before all of his friends, all of these are men, Vashti has another banquet going on with just women, he orders Vashti to come, and he wants her uh, basically to come and parade around so that he can show his friends, all of these out-of-town guests, just how beautiful his wife is. In fact, most Bible scholars um, uh, believe that when it says that he wanted her to come in her royal uh, garments that really what he wanted her to do was just come in simply wearing her crown and to be nude except for that. And he wanted to parade his wife in front of these drunken men. The king's wise men, and I use that term very loosely. In fact, in the Old Testament, as you read the kings and their soothsayers, their wise men, usually it means just the opposite. They're really not that wise. They advise him as a result of her refusal to come that he should banish her from the kingdom. Uh, and the reason that they give, if you read there further, the reason that they give is because if uh, people in the kingdom see that she can get by with that, what will the other women do? So king, we've got to set an example. So ban her from the royal household. And Xerxes follows their advice and we never hear Vashti's name again, not only in the book of Esther, but in all of Scripture. About four years after this, Xerxes goes out to battle with the Greeks and he gets his royal behind spanked by the Greeks. And he comes back and you can picture this king who is so proud. He's got three million square miles of real estate that he controls. He's got riches. He's got women. He's got everything. But now he's been humiliated and he comes back and he's really sad because he realizes that uh, he has no queen. He's got lots of women, but he has no soulmate. Plenty of women, but not the one that he really loves. Here's where I want to park here for just a minute. And I want to, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. 
People who cannot repent often end up living lonely lives. There's a lot of material here in the book of Esther. As I said, we did 10 sermons on it back a few years ago. There's a lot of material here. If you get nothing else out of uh, our time together this morning, uh, maybe for some of you, maybe you need to wrap your arms around that statement. People who cannot repent often end up living lonely lives. People who can never admit that they were wrong, can never admit that they were at fault, you end up living a very lonely life. There's some of you here this morning and you've lived a very long time and if we gave you opportunity, you could stand up and you could give testimony to that fact. Maybe that's where a lot of us are here today. Maybe you've made some really bad decisions in the past and as a result of those decisions, Um, you've hurt someone with your words or with your action. And here's what's even worse is for a lot of us, we know when we're in that position, don't we? we? We know when we've said things that hurt people. We know when we've done things that have caused harm to those that we say we love. And yet for so many of us, we are so stubborn that we're not willing to admit that we're wrong. And a lot of time goes by. And as a result of that time passing, we lose relationships with people that we once loved and enjoyed. Can I tell you this this morning? If you find yourself in that position, and I say this to you uh, in a pastoral, loving way, and yet, frankly, uh, quit being stupid in that area of your life. You know, in in the very best case, I, I was with Mr. Hoyg last night. He celebrated his 90th birthday. Is that awesome? 90 years. But you know, as long as 90 years is, 90 years, and I know Mr. Hoig would say this, goes by like that. And it is not worth you spending one more hour, not one more day of your life, fractured in a relationship because you are too stubborn to admit that you were wrong. I want to challenge you to change that if you need to change that. And so here's the king. He comes back from this battle after getting uh, defeated pretty soundly. He realizes there's no queen. Bad for him that he doesn't live in 2016. There's no e-harmony. There's no, uh, there's no how, about, how about this farmersonly.com? Yeah, I don't know about that. I guess some guys need that. Some women are looking for farmers. Uh, how they, you know, I understand that. There's no match.com, there's no nothing. And so he goes to the advice of his wise men, right? They'll tell me what to do. And he holds an enormous competition. The wise men come in and they say, King, we've got an idea. How about we gather young virgins from all over the kingdom? We bring them in and we give them 12 months of spa treatments. Now, guys, you think it took a long time for your wife to get ready this morning. Can you imagine 12 months of spa treatments? You can read there in the text at how intricate these treatments are so that these women are prepared when they go in and they literally spend their night with the king. One of the young young women that was in the competition to become the queen of Persia was a young woman by the name of Esther. She was Jewish by descent, although uh, she wasn't necessarily walking with God. In fact, I would argue, uh, unlike some Bible scholars, that it's pretty obvious that she wasn't walking with God. 
Her parents died when she was little, and as I said earlier in our introduction, she was adopted by her older cousin Mordecai, who served like a father figure in her life. Now, Mordecai, at this point, is kind of a coward. Nobody knows that he's Jewish, and she, he makes sure that she knows that she's not supposed to tell anybody that she's Jewish either. He's living in a pagan city, obviously not living a life that is pleasing to God. Rather than returning to Jerusalem, he decides to stay there. And it's no real surprise when it comes time to hand his adoptive uh, daughter off for an ancient episode of The Bachelor. He puts absolutely no fight up. There's no struggle that we see recorded in Scripture at all. Now, maybe some of you have been through a study of the book of Esther before. I have a pretty deep conviction that these two main characters, Esther and Mordecai, are not simply godly people that are living in a godless culture. I think they're people that have compromised who they believe themselves to be under the, under the authority of Jehovah God. And as a, result of them, as a result of that, they see themselves making decisions that they would have never made had they not been in a pagan culture that was shaping them. And so if you can imagine this man, Mordecai, rather than protecting this girl, this beautiful, beautiful young lady that he's got responsibility for, he basically encourages her to be part of this competition. If you read on in the text, Esther, Esther spends a night with the king and he's smitten with her beauty. In fact, chapter 2, verse 9 says she pleased him and won his favor. I, I doubt that it was just simply an intriguing conversation. She was such a uh, an incredibly brilliant, bright mind that he was intrigued by her. You know, we really, we, we, we cannot pretend here that this is okay. She no doubt had a sexual relationship with him that evening. And as a result of that, the king was pleased with her. Not because of her commitment, not because of her character, but because of her beauty. It's just another reminder that God has in the past and will continue to use flawed people like you and me to accomplish his purposes. I'm so grateful for that. It's so easy to read a text like this and go, can you believe that she did that? Can you believe that she would want to be part of that? And yet I don't have to look in the mirror very long, and I dare say you don't either, before you can see compromises in your own life. And yet for whatever reason, in God's love and his grace and his mercy, he still chooses to use people like you and me. Mordecai spends his days at the city gates. We're not exactly sure why. Now, we do know that in those cultures, a lot of business was done at the king's gates. We can speculate maybe that that's what was going on, but uh, the end of chapter 2 tells us that he overhears a plot to assassinate King Xerxes, and he takes that information and he gives it to Esther, and she gives it to Xerxes. As a result of that, these two men are put to death, and Mordecai's name is noted in the king's chronicles for this act of valor and loyalty to the king. A king has a right-hand man, Every king needs a right-hand man. The king's right-hand man is named Haman. Haman is an egomaniac. He loves power, glory. He loves public recognition. As a result of his place of authority, the king makes a decree. You just got to wonder how all this stuff happens, right? But the king makes a decree that everybody's supposed to bow down to Haman. When they see him, they're supposed to show him respect. It was official recognition of his power and of his authority in the kingdom. It's kind of like a, a curtsy that they would do in, in Britain or in an Asian culture, bowing. 
Everybody bows to Haman except for one man, and that man's name is Mordecai. It's interesting, by the way, to see that uh, Mordecai here, he won't bow. He has strong conviction about bowing to Haman, and yet absolutely no conviction, no backbone, no ability to be able to stand when it came to giving his adoptive daughter off to the king. And so you have a situation where lots of people are bowing except for one man, and it makes things rather awkward, makes Haman rather angry. If we had time, we could go back into history and we could see probably why this is. Haman's family, Haman was from uh, the family, the Agagites, and they were the first uh, people group to actually attack the family line of Abraham from which Mordecai uh, is a part. And so obviously they have hatred towards one another, and it's one of those situations why they don't even probably know why they really hate each other, but they do. It's amazing how long grievances and hatred can go on, hundreds of years in this case. And so Mordecai continues to show disrespect for Haman, and Haman gets upset, and eventually, in chapter 3, he goes to King Xerxes, and he chooses to uh, sway King Xerxes that he would uh, send out a decree that on a particular day they would eradicate all of the Jewish people that lived in Persia. Here's the sobering thing about that. Uh, historians estimate that that would have been roughly 15 million Jews. See, we look at the Holocaust and we think that uh, that was the first time and that was horrible what happened in the 1940s, but we don't realize that that has been going on for centuries and centuries. It doesn't really seem to fit the crime. Haman is upset because one man won't bow and as a result, he, he wants to oversee genocide and a holocaust. Chapter 4, Mordecai gets wind of what's going on and all of a sudden, he is a broken, broken man. In fact, one of the things I love about these cultures is that they really know how to express grief. In our culture, especially as men, sometimes we'll go off to the side and we might shed a few tears, we might do... In the Middle Eastern culture, when they grieve, and unfortunately we see this too often on our TV screens, don't we? As car bombs go off and little children are killed, dozens of people at a time, and we see the wailing and the grieving. And that's what's happening with, uh, with Mordecai here. He recognizes the gravity of what's about ready to take place, that he and all of his people are going to be eradicated from the face of the earth. And chapter 4 is somewhat of a turning point in the whole story. Up to this point, we see nothing that would cause us to think that Mordecai and Esther have any heart for the things of God. God is eerily silent. There's no mention of his name. Obviously, that the, cho the choices that the two of these uh, people have made would never be pleasing to a holy God. And all of a sudden, he begins to see things differently. Something changes in Mordecai's life. He's a broken man. I, I, I want you to know and tell you if you don't know that it's always where change begins, and that's brokenness. You'll never change something that you don't acknowledge. Until God breaks you, he will never make you what he wants you to be. I know it's certainly been true in my life that I have never grown up in my faith during the really great times in my life. 
I don't know if you'd say that or not. It's always during the difficult times. It's always when God allows something to come into my life or I make poor decisions and as a result of that have to deal with consequence. That's when I begin to be shaped into who God wants me to be. In fact, the very definition of repentance means that we move in a new direction. We stop with excuses. We refuse to believe the lies of Satan. And we move in a new direction. Esther finds out that uh, her cousin, her older cousin, uh, somebody who she obviously really loves, is grieving. He's doing this in the middle of the city, right? It's not like somebody said, hey, I stopped by Mordecai's house the other day. He didn't seem too happy. Everybody knows. In fact, uh, the, the text says, I think it's verse 3, that, that tells us that this was going on all over the provinces. Esther evidently doesn't know what's going on. We're not really sure if she knows and just wants to ignore it or if she really doesn't know what's going on. So the only thing that she can do is she sends him some clothes, which just tells you that um, he was naked. He needed clothes, all right? And again, in that culture, they would take ashes, they would put them all over their bodies, they would appear almost as ghosts walking around. So she sends new clothes to Mordecai, but he refuses to put it on because of the gravity of the situation. And she sends some of her servants to talk to him, and he says, doesn't she know? Here's the decree that's been passed. And here's what she needs to do. She needs to go in and she needs to tell the king what's going on. And she needs to plead on our behalf. Verse 10 of chapter 4, Esther reminds Mordecai that she can't just simply waltz in to see the king. In fact, she tells him, I haven't even seen him in 30 days. Can you imagine that? Some of you women are going, well, that actually sounds pretty great to be away from him for 30 days. 30 days since, she, since he's even seen her, and she says, you don't understand, this guy is a maniac. If I go before him, and in that culture, if the king wanted to see you, if you appeared before him, and that royal scepter was presented, then that means it's okay. But if not, it, re- it literally meant off with your head. So she's saying, I can't go and do that. And you know, here's what I find to be interesting. You and I do the same thing, don't we? We find ourselves in a situation where we know we need to speak out for or against something, and yet we remain silent. What if I lose my job? You know, when you're at school, it's what will people think about me? Will I lose friendships? Will they they say things about me? Will I become uh, the, the subject of scorn on social media? Every moment of every day, you and I are confronted with opportunities to speak up for what is right. And most of the time, it doesn't involve losing our heads. Can I remind you, if you need to be reminded, if you do, uh, you really need to wake up, that in the culture in which you and I are living, even what we see playing out on our newspapers and our TV screens right this week about things happening in the great state of North Carolina, there is coming a time, if it's not already here, when we are going to regularly be put in a position where we have to stand up for what we say we believe in. It is so easy to come into a service like this and be around other Christians and all agree together that something is right or something is wrong. It's another thing to go out into the real world and live it and be willing to speak up in a gentle yet firm way about what is right and about where your convictions are. 
And let me just tell you, there is coming a day, if it's not already here, where you and I are going to be called to do that on a regular basis. For those of you that have a tendency to look at some of our middle school and high school kids and say, well, when I was your age, would you quit saying that? You have absolutely no idea what it's like for them in the world that they're growing up in. You have absolutely no idea what the pressures are like. Those of you that are my age, just a little bit younger, just a little bit older, we lived in a different world. I never thought I'd say that, but we lived in a different world. And we need to support these kids. We need to equip them. That's why we're trying to do what we're trying to do in our student ministry, so that they're convinced of truth. Not just that they hear truth in your home, but they are convinced of truth, so that they go out and they speak truth and they stand for truth, and they do it, hear this, with gentleness and respect. That's what God calls us to do. And what's Esther's first reaction? What about me? What might it cost me? It might cost me my life if I were to do this. Verse 14 is the first moment in the book of Esther where we read what appears to be a possible reference to God, where Mordecai says, if you remain silent, relief and deliverance will come from, quote, another place. Mordecai is referring to that if you remain silent, I believe he's kind of saying, I know, I know what the, what the, what the upper story is. God's somehow going to rescue his people. He'd been taught since he was a little boy that, that these were God's people and that God was going to prosper the people of Abraham and that they would be a great people. He knew that was going to happen. And so he's saying, Esther, if you don't stand up and you do what's right, God's going to bring deliverance from another place. What an incredible reminder to us. If we don't obey God and let him use us, he will use someone else or something else. Here's the problem. Many of us are missing those opportunities, aren't we? We're missing the opportunities to stand up, those defining moments in our life. I look at some of you high school guys, and I wonder if you're, if you're missing the opportunity right now to stand up. High school girls, are you missing the opportunity to stand up and do what's right, even though everybody else is doing something different? Remember what Jerry talked about a couple of weeks ago, young Daniel and his friends, that in the midst of a, of a crooked, perverse culture, they stood up and they did what was right, and as a result, God did incredible things in their life and elevated them to positions of influence. Most of us are missing those defining moments in our lives. Esther makes this decision, which will define the rest of her life and her faith. She asked Mordecai and the Jews, I think it's interesting, she asked them to fast. Normally we think of fasting being fasting and praying, right? Just say anything about prayer. Just fast. Uh, some Bible scholars say, well, it's implied. I don't know necessarily that it's implied. She says she's going to pray with her small group of girls. Look at verse 16. And then notice the end of verse 16. She says, if I perish, I perish. She finally got it. She decided what was the most important thing in her life was not her life. <laughs> you know, that's the greatest moment to come to in your life. I'm so thankful that over the course of history that there have been people that have come to the place where they realized that the most important thing was not their life, but it was something bigger than their life. One man said this, you know, there are three kinds of messes. There's either the mess that you've made, you're living in the mess that somebody else made for you, 
or you're just living in the messiness of a fallen world, the tragedies, the circumstances that follow bad decisions, sinful choices, and tragic circumstances. And here's the thing. These things don't define you, but they force us into a place of desperation so dire that our only recourse is to completely rely upon God. And Esther gets to the point where she says, if I perish, I perish. The reality is that we often don't live life well until our lives have been shattered, until our lives have been broken. Why is that? Why is that, that for some of us here today, God is going to have to break you in a significant way? Maybe there's a man here today and you know the the rampant sin that's in your life that nobody else knows. You know what's going on and you flirt with it every single day. Not just men, but women, middle school students, high school students. You flirt with it every day thinking you can get away with it. And God will have to break you before you get to the point where you understand that this life is not about you. Once the God of the Bible becomes your greatest treasure, people can't threaten you, they can't manipulate you, they can't intimidate you. Things don't matter anymore. And that's where Esther's gotten to. And here's the really cool thing. Finally, Esther's free. (laughs) She's free. She says, if I live, then I'll live. If I die, I die. But I am finally going to do what is right. It reminds me of the testimony of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 where he said, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, tame word compared to the actual word in the Greek language, so that I might gain Christ. When you and I get to that point in our lives, that's when we'll make a difference, when we're broken, When our greatest treasure has to be Jesus, not anything or anyone else, in Esther's case, not all the trappings of the kingdom that she had gotten as a result of being the queen, but when you totally recognize that the only thing that really matters is God and his name, that's when you really begin to live life. So Esther goes before the king, and it's a really fascinating story. If you've never read it, I encourage you to read further. She goes before the king. And gets to the point where she makes sure that he knows that his right-hand man, Haman, is attempting to annihilate her people. Xerxes is enraged. (laughs) Read the text there. You'll be fascinated by Xerxes' reaction there. He's so enraged that he's been tricked by Haman. He orders Haman to be hung on a gallows that Haman had prepared for the man that he hated most, Mordecai. How ironic. Mordecai is promoted to Haman's position. He's given all of Haman's possessions, and the Jewish people are spared from annihilation. And this, my friends, is God's message of hope and of grace. Here's the bottom line. If I got to choose between being Daniel, that Jerry talked about a couple of weeks ago, and Esther, I choose Daniel every day of the week, don't you? I mean, I love that whole story. I loved singing the songs when I was a kid. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. You know? Don't ask me. I'm a Daniel. Right? Everybody wants to be a Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. I learned it when I was in middle school. Daniel purposed in his heart. He made up his mind. That's me. I'm going to make up my mind. You know, I go into my 
big high school, and I'm like, I'm making my mind, until the first sign of something where I had to stand for what was right, and I would fade. Daniel, when he's 80 years old, you can't pray to anybody else but the king. I don't care. Flips open the doors. I go, that's me. I want to be Daniel. Here's the truth. While many of us want to be Daniels, for every Daniel, there's at least a thousand Esthers. That's where most of us live. That's where I live so much of the time. I'm a messed up guy, stumbling my way into God's purpose in spite of myself. Many of us only get there when we're dragged into the will of God by desperation and lack of alternatives. Can I, can I challenge you that before you get to the point of desperation and lack of alternatives, for some of us that you make the decision today that you're going to walk with God you're going to do things God's way, that you're going to be a, a difference maker. I want to challenge you, and, and, and again, I know I've said this a lot this morning, but especially you middle school and high school students, um, don't wait till you're old to decide to stand up for what's right. Because it's socially acceptable for you to behave a certain way because that's the way that high school students or middle school students or college students, that's just okay because we're just going to kind of go through that time of life and then ultimately someday we'll be a difference maker and we'll stand up for what's right. Can I encourage you to do it now? To be a difference maker now? To stand in stark contrast to the culture that's around you? For every Daniel, there's thousands of Esthers. And yet, in a weird kind of way, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by that. That God wasn't done with Esther. We know that the end of the story is that the Jews are saved, obviously, from annihilation, but we don't know what happens to Esther after that. We never hear of Mordecai again. But we know this, that obedience brings blessing. No matter what the turmoil is that's going on in this lower story, that even in a book, 167 verses where God's name is never mentioned, God's grand story, his upper story, is happening. And his hand is moving. And it's at work to do what he wants to do in and through people like you and me. Messed up little Esthers. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And... Uh, We've had to run through quickly what I believe to be a very significant portion of Scripture. God, for many of us, uh, if we're honest here this morning, we, we do live more like Esther than we do a Daniel. And for many of us, God, we have the testimony that it wasn't until we were broken that we really got serious about who we were in Christ. There's others of us that are here today that are still gambling with the fact that we can live our life any way that we want to live it, and yet still somehow find joy and satisfaction. And God, I pray that you would use your spirit this morning to convince us that that's not reality, that that won't happen. And I pray, God, especially my heart, just for whatever reason, is really uh, drawn today to our middle school and high school students. God, I pray that out of 
uh, this fellowship of believers that we call Northwest. God, I pray that you would uh, bring some, uh, raise up some young men and some young women who will dare to stand alone, who will dare to stand the face of adversity, to stand up for what is right and for what honors and pleases Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd give us some of those kids. I pray that we'll be faithful to encourage them, to pray for them, to love them, and that you will use many of them in a great and an awesome way to influence and impact their culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.